Welcome to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. This is a new kind of uh, feature of the show. For those of you that usually listen, you know that uh, Dion and I usually cover a single movie at length, but uh, we're starting a new show, which I'm going to call Movie Lovers, where either uh, Dion or myself, or possibly both of us, will sit down with a fellow movie lover and chat movies. For our first episode, we have a very special guest. Uh, the multi-talented Richard Christie. Most people will probably know him from the Howard Stern Show, but he's a talented musician, composer, uh, actor, with such memorable characters as Nervous Mark and <laughs> and Ethel. And hey, Rusty. I was in a horror film too called <laughs> Albino Farm. I play a crazy preacher, so <laughs> check that one out. Uh, you're also a filmmaker with such hits as. Evil Ned 2 and Evil Ned 3, The Return of Evil Ned 2, Electric Boogaloo. Look him up on YouTube <laughs> if you dare. <laughs> and uh, Leaving Grunion County, and of course, the infamous Super Twink. <laughs> Your latest music and musical endeavor is Charred Walls of the Damned, is that mm, correct? That is correct, and it's great to be here, Blake. Thank you so much for having me, and... Uh, you know, what's the sleepover theme? I got my jammies on. <laughs> Actually, I don't, but we'll pretend we, out there like in Radio to, Land that I do. Yes, we like to do theater of the mind. Yeah, I'm We wearing, often, uh, I'm today we're, my, we're recording in my house, but usually we record it in my mom's basement. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Charred Walls of the Damned, we have a new album out that came out last September called Creatures Watching Over the Dead. And I actually, uh, the cover is done by a photographer who I'm a, an artist who I'm a huge fan of called Pumpkin Rot. And uh, you got to check his website out. His stuff is amazing. So, you know, for all those horror fans out there like me, uh, if you get to buy it on vinyl, the, the friggin' artwork is, is awesome. And I'm just really proud of the songs in the album, too. It's so on this, uh, Metal Blade Records. Sorry, Blake. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, this is, is this the third album? It is, yeah. The third one. And I think it's, uh, it's our best one yet. It's been... The reviews have been amazing, and uh, you know we put out a song called "The Soulless" that uh, people really love, and I'm just I'm really proud of it. So if you like melodic metal, check it out. Well, I mean that kind of brings me to my first question. I guess is uh, you're on here basically to talk about horror movies and music, and and because I'm a huge fan of yours <laughs> and your book, <laughs> I just finished your book, and I appreciate it. You know, I. Tell everybody to buy in bulk, you know? <laughs> it makes a great gift <laughs> for those horror fans in your family. But, uh, you know, I think heavy metal and horror movies kind of go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering why, do you have any opinion as to why that might be? Uh, you know, I mean, they're both kind of fringe forms of art, I guess. It's not really horror and metal. I guess the closest they came to being mainstream is in the 80s. But they're, they're the kind of art forms where when you meet somebody that's into either horror or metal, you feel a kinship with them um, because it's not 
something that everybody's into yeah. and especially when you meet somebody that knows who like alan howarth is or <laughs> you know um something like that then you feel this bond with them because it's this really non-mainstream type thing and it's kind of i guess uh you know a little rebellious <laughs> yeah i think that you know i just had to start thinking about this kind of thing a lot when i started writing the book because for me there was a big turning point with my love for horror and it was at the late 90s turn into the 2000s and i started to think about when horror started to become like a really big thing because when you and i were growing up it was much more of like a niche mm-hmm. kind of thing of course you had like freddy krueger and jason and they were you know, as they describe in the book as being like the rock stars of kind of yeah. cinema. And, and even the special make special makeup effects guys like Tom Savini and Rob Bottin yeah. in the eighties, they were like rock stars. So I mean there was like a big thing about horror movies, but then it seemed to me that the rise of the internet started to kind of unite us all mm-hmm. in a weird way and, and even more horror conventions started popping up and there was all these horror blog websites and even more magazines other than Fangoria who I just read recently might not be publishing anymore, which is very sad. Oh, that's a shame. Um, the, you know, the, you know, the, the publishing of magazines is kind of getting pushed away from, uh, happening, unfortunately, because there's still a few good ones out there though. Like Fangoria horror hound. I love, I, yeah. I buy that every I'm month. A big fan De- of- Decibel magazine. I actually write a horror article for decibel magazine, the heavy metal magazine. And that's comes out monthly still. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rue Morgue is one that I also, Morgue is awesome. I also read a lot. Mm-hmm. But um, it seemed like the turn of the, it was like the rise of the internet ended up being this real driving force that kind of pushed horror because it also made a lot of horror available. Yeah. Uh, and then with like the DVD market and stuff started coming out in America that was never really available that much. Yeah, you were able to get the DVDs like other regions of DVDs <laughs> and things that had more special features. Yeah, yeah. And, for me, a huge thing for me was when eBay first came out, and I was able to get. I remember the first thing I ever bought on eBay was uh, Creep Show on vinyl, and I freaked out. I was like, "Oh my god!" You mean there's this thing where you can go on the internet and buy these <laughs> awesome horror albums? And then I bought a Laserdisc player off of eBay, and the Fog on Laserdisc because they're on yeah. Laserdisc you could listen to different tracks, like audio tracks. And they had an audio track with only the music. And this was when I wasn't able to get a hold of the actual soundtrack. And so I recorded just the music from the movie on a different track into my computer. And and I was blown away that you could even (laughs) do that. (laughs) Yeah, that was like, there's this whole sub, uh, there's this whole like group of, you know, geeks like you and I, where Mm -hmm. the new, the newer geeks, the younger geeks will never know like, the painstaking effort we went through to try to do stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> to know? find those soundtracks, too. I remember uh, I was touring with a band um, that I played drums in called Death uh, in 1998, and we played in the village at a place called Coney Island High. And I remember asking, that all I wanted to find on tour was some John Carpenter CDs, because I had heard... That you know, that if you go to a big city, you can buy yeah. his soundtracks on CD. And this in '98, it wasn't easy to find that kind of stuff. So there was a, a store in New York City that only was soundtracks. And I remember I went there, 
and I bought uh, European versions of The Thing, Prince of Darkness, and The Fog. And it cost me like $90 for three <laughs> CDs. But I wore those CDs out yeah, on tour. Yeah. I drove everybody on the bus crazy. We were touring with this band called Hammerfall. And all I would ever listen to is The, the Fog, The Thing, or uh, uh, Prince of Darkness on CD. <laughs> yeah, you used to have to really work for it. Now mm-hmm. it's uh, people are spoiled. I'm and- not going to complain, though. <laughs> now, like, you know, today we both ordered... Uh, the thing on vinyl yeah, from Mondo. Yeah. So I love as soon as a new release comes out, I'm I'm setting my <laughs> watch to buy it because those things sell out quick now. Yeah, too. yeah. I mean, even when uh, I remember I started going to horror conventions in 97 or 98 when I was living just outside of New York City. Um, and they would have the Fangoria conventions and whatnot. And even going then, you know... Uh, it was exciting because you couldn't find these kinds of things, whether it be the soundtracks mm-hmm. or the movies, and you would go and there'd be people with like bootleg VHSs from Japanese laser discs of Dario Argento movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember when I was I grew up in Kansas, so there were no conventions around me, but I had that the very first Fangoria convention, I think it was, came out on VHS. Oh yeah. Where you could like watch the convention. <laughs> they did a documentary about the convention and I remember I used to watch that and my dream was to one day go to a Fangoria convention and I finally got to go uh in Vegas in I think two thousand nine they had one. Yeah. And I was finally able to go to one. Yeah, it's a whole they've really kind of coming to their own they're all they're all the time now a bunch of different ones i've been mm-hmm. to monster palooza in pasadena california i've been monster to mania monster mania in jersey Ma- monster mania in jersey and of course the chiller chiller theater yeah chiller theater in jersey also i had to kind of stop myself from going to those things because i spend too much money <laughs> <laughs> and my place is so small where i live here in new york city you know i've i had to unfortunately put all my movie maniacs toys in storage yeah, yeah. i just don't have nowhere to display everything so I kept buying all this stuff, and it'd have to go right into storage. But my dream is one day to have a house where I can display all my <laughs> horror geek. Uh, uh, I'm sure stuff. I'm sure many of our listeners can uh, can 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 relate to that yeah. sentiment. Um, so uh, you grew up obviously a metalhead and a horror fan. What came first for you? I would say horror. Um, I remember my parents took me to see the thing. John Carpenter's The Thing at the drive-in in in 1982. I was eight years old, and it changed my life. Because I I had always loved monsters. And I had an older cousin who would give me famous monsters magazines and Fangoria. And I was really into Godzilla. And I was really into, uh, you know, just giant monsters specifically. But when The Thing came out, it was kind of the first movie where... All throughout the movie, they showed the monster right there, you know, right there in front of you. In other movies, they, the big reveal was at the end of the monster. And so I was blown away by John Carpenter's The Thing. And I remember I went to school the next day, and that's all I was telling everybody else at school about was, you got to go see The Thing. It's, there's, there's crazy monsters all throughout the movie, and they don't hide them in the dark, you know. <laughs> and it just, it really changed my life. And then a year later... Uh, Quiet Riot came out with the album Metal Health, and I had a neighbor uh, who was a couple years older than me and was a metalhead, yeah. and he played that album for me, and it, and it changed my life, too. So really those years, 1982 and 83, 
were huge years in my life because I became a fan of horror and heavy metal, and it's something that I'll be into for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember when I was growing up, um, I had a cousin who was older than me, um, even older than my older brother, so he was quite a bit older, and he was way into Ozzy. And he had, like, his own, like, deadbolt lock on his bedroom door. <laughs> And, uh, but every once in a while the door would be open and you would be able to walk in and, and my aunt would sometimes babysit me and I would go into Tony's room, my cousin Tony's room and I'd look on the, on his wall and there was like, you know, pictures of Ozzy from Bark at the Moon. And, wow. Um, that was a scary werewolf, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And there that's, was... Is that Rick? That's Rick Baker, right? Doing the effect? That or, I don't know. That's actually a really interesting question. it might question. be, it might be Steve, um... Oh, why can't I think? It's Steve Johnson, maybe. I'm not. I have to look. I'm that sure one up. somebody that's going to listen to this will <laughs> yeah. correct us. I know. I'm sure somebody <laughs> out there has the the correct answer. You I idiots! Hope that, I know. I should know that. Or the one. Uh, I can't. Th- unfortunately, maybe you know the name of the album. There was that first live album that he put out, which was like in conjunction with. Uh, the Sabbath one, Live Evil. Oh, yeah. That one where they, he wanted to get them Sabbath material. I guess Sharon wanted to get the Sabbath material out first live before Sabbath did. Uh-huh. And the cover of that album was Ozzy with like Dracula teeth and like blood coming out of yeah. his mouth. And there was like a little person dressed as the Grim Reaper. <laughs> and uh, so I had all these posters up in his room. And it was just like, I don't know. It just like captured the imagination of like the five-year-old Blake, <laughs> you know, which is like these weird horror images, but it's awesome. cool how something like that, you're still talking about this many years later. It had such an effect on you. Oh yeah. It's, it's, that's uh, awesome. So that was always a big deal. And I remember when I was in junior high, maybe, uh, I was way into things like the blues. I mean, I was never really into the, that much of the popular music of the time, but I was on this kick where I was listening to Dirk and the Dominoes a lot. They were a Clapton band, and there was someone at my bus stop who we started talking about music, and I was talking about how I was really into this Dirk and the Dominoes album. He's like, well, uh, let me borrow it, and I'll lend, you know, we'll trade for like a week. I'll mm-hmm. give you something, and you give me something. So I gave him this Dirk and the Dominoes live at the Fillmore, and he gave me Black Sabbath Paranoid. Wow. And it changed my life forever. Yeah. <laughs> like, I remember going to... Uh, my friend Pete's house after school and telling him, oh, I got the CD from Dave Lambert. <laughs> he lent me this CD. Uh-huh. And we put it in and we're sitting there listening to it. And that's, you know, of course that song, the album opens with like War Pigs. Yeah. And, and I remember Pete's older brother came in and his friend who was the, his neighbor, Smitty, they knocked on the door and they're like, are you guys listening to Black Sabbath? And we felt so awesome. We're like, yeah, of course. <laughs> you were you were inducted into the cool club, then, huh? And uh, and that was that was like then I never looked back. Like Black Sabbath, I taught basically taught myself how to play guitar by just like copying Tiny, Tiny, Tony Iommi licks off of that album. Wow. And I got to a point when I was in college where I just sit around in my dorm room and I would just put that album on and I would just play along with it like note for note. And I had all these. Uh, friends that were music majors like mm-hmm. real deal musicians and uh either classical or jazz depending on what program they were in and i remember this guy john who was a bass like an upright bass player for orchestras he came in he's like he's like you're awesome i was like what are you talking about he's like 
just think how like how awesome Beavis and Butthead were think you you are sitting in here playing like note for note Black Sabbath. <laughs> I love he compared it to like what Beavis and Butthead would think of you. <laughs> He's like you're living the dream in here, and I was like, so uh, you know I think a lot of that horror imagery and and obviously I mean you know in a lot of ways Black Sabbath mm-hmm. is thought of of inventing heavy metal but that like the inspiration came from this idea of like people go see these scary movies and they yeah. like them so what happens if we make scary well music? their name is from a, a <laughs> horror movie you yeah know? classic mario, mario Bava. Bava, yeah i remember i heard war pigs on the radio when i was about 11 years old there was a some am station in the midwest that had that would play heavy metal around midnight and they played war pigs and i had never heard black sabbath i knew who black sabbath was yeah. but for some reason, I had never heard of them, heard them before, and I was about yeah, probably ten or eleven, right around when I started getting into metal, and I heard War Pigs. I was like, "This is some scary stuff." <laughs> it like freaked me out, but I loved it. Uh, you know, I, it was around midnight, and I was scared listening the way Ozzy was singing, and you know, witches. He's singing about witches yeah, and yeah. stuff. I was, and then from there, uh, I really got into Alice Cooper. I really got into King Diamond. I'm still a massive King Diamond fan. And I remember seeing the video on Headbangers Ball for Family Ghost from his Abigail album. And uh, it sounded like a a ghost singing, like his that yeah. falsetto that he uses. And it scared the hell out of me because <laughs> I was up late night, you know, 1 a.m. Uh, in Kansas watching Headbangers Ball around 1987, <laughs> 88. And I freaking yeah. loved it. So I love anything that, that just... I love being scared, I guess. Yeah, and, yeah. And I love music that scares me, and I love movies that scare me. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's college courses taught about it and movies, I mean, and books written about it, like this idea of, like, what's appealing about being scared. And mm-hmm. um, there's some quote that, like, you know, Stephen King, I think, said it's, you know, horror movies are great because it's, like, practice for death or something yeah. like that, yeah. you know? And there's this idea of um, being being able to experience those things, but at the end of the day, knowing that you're safe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we before we started recording, you and I were talking a lot about John Carpenter. So John Carpenter's the thing was kind of your like real big eye opener. But I, you know, it's it's legendary that you've said that Halloween is a big favorite of yours. Oh, and, absolutely. And yeah. you and I were talking about uh, kind of the importance of the fog. The fog. Well, you know, a lot of it is, you know, that you mentioned the Stephen King uh, saying that it's horror movies are like practice for death or something like that. But I, for me, a lot of it is I'm so scared that there's nothing after that happens when we die, you know, that it just it, we just go dead like a battery. That <laughs> yeah. I, one thing I love about horror movies is um, if I ever saw a ghost, I'd be so excited. I love, you know, the. Like the fog, the the fact that these people, even though they died a horrible death and they're back a hundred years later, but for me, maybe being a kid, I, I like the idea that hey, maybe there is something after we're gone. You know, maybe yeah. maybe we can still be around somehow. So <laughs> even if it's some kind of horrible purgatory, <laughs> <laughs> I know. Even if even if I have to be like a chain rattling ghost, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, like in the fog, it's better than nothing. So I think that's a lot of the appeal for horror movies for me is just 
hoping that there's some kind of afterlife, even if you do turn into a very angry ghost. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the fog I saw on TV when I was very young, and it blew me away. And that is one of my all-time favorite soundtracks. It's so subtle. It's so beautiful. Just He only uses a couple notes, and they're just a mix of notes that's perfect for that movie and just sets this ghostly tone and, yeah. and just everything is perfect about that soundtrack. Well, there was, um, I mean, it's a beautiful main theme, that piano thing that he does mm. is, it's just absolutely beautiful. And it's yeah, very, I just re- love the dun, dun, <laughs> dun. Yeah, yeah. It's so simple and perfect, but the mix of notes that he uses it. And we were talking about this earlier too, when he played it, when John Carpenter played the theme from the fog live and he had, uh, clips from the movie and a fog machine on stage. I cried. I, yeah, yeah. I, I have to admit it. I teared up because that music means so much to me, and that movie means so so much to me. Oh, I, my wife and I celebrate Fog Day every April twenty <laughs> first of April. <laughs> the uh, you know uh, uh, in October we covered the on the regular show Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Deanna and I talked about In the Mouth of Madness, and I oh, I talked classic. I talked at length about that seeing him live and being emotional. I probably almost got emotional talking about it on the <laughs> podcast. It's weird. Uh, and it was one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show. Cause I feel like there are very few people. I mean, uh, you know, people that are listening to this and, and are way into Carpenter and horror movie music and stuff would get it. But there's a whole other variety of people that wouldn't, understand finding the music to a john carpenter movie very emotional (laughs) yeah because it's uh you know it reminds me it reminds you of a time in your life uh when you first saw those movies and and they changed your life yeah and even in the mouth of madness i saw in the theater when it came out i went back and saw it a couple more times because it just blew my mind and uh and i love in your book too where you talk about i had never known that there was a temp track of uh, John Carpenter said Metallica Inner Sandman. Yeah, and so and when he you kinda, hear it now, you're like, oh yeah, yeah. When that. you hear the In the Mouth of Madness main theme, it, it's like, wow, I can see where it was kind of, you know, inspired by that. And I thought that I love. I, there were so many cool things in your book that I discovered that I never knew um, about John Carpenter's music and about every uh, every composer that you interviewed that I freaking loved. Well, I mean, I, I appreciate that, and I appreciate you buying a copy and, and taking the time to read it. I mean, part of the reason why I wrote it was because I I could only imagine that there were people out there passionate about it like myself, and I couldn't really find a book like it. You know, I, I mm-hmm. found interview-based uh, books about film music in general, but none of them talk specifically about horror movies, and then you could find books about horror movie music, but they were all kind of essay based and you don't get to hear it from like the mouths of the composers. And for me in the late nineties, when I started getting really diehard into uh, horror movies and and the music, the music of John Carpenter in the late nineties. And then that kind of led to a fascination with uh, the Italian guys like the band Goblin and Fabio Mm -hmm. Frizzi for me. And so this was a passion that has been building for years and then got now they're all touring we were just talking yeah. about carpenter toured and i saw goblin and once i saw that show goblin live in brooklyn 
I listened to Goblin for like a year straight. Like that was like the only thing I listened to. I listened to the Howard Stern show. And when I wasn't listening to that, I was listening to Goblin music. And um, that's kind of where this inspiration came, where it's like, I want to read about this kind of music, and especially that Italian stuff. Like, yeah. you know, now there's a fan base for Goblin and obviously a big enough fan base that they can come to American tour and even sell out places like New York and LA. But since these guys are Italian, there was really nothing you could read from them, mm -hmm. you know, about the music too much. It was all very like peripheral. I mean, it wasn't, a, there wasn't a whole lot. And I was like, yeah, cause like rock bands, there's so many books about, you know, every rock band that's out there, but <laughs> you know, Goblin is a, an amazing, they're an amazing rock band. And, and like you said, there's just not much to read it or know about them. Yeah. I, I didn't really know much about their background until I read your book. So it was like I was on this mission of like finding this information when I couldn't find it. Then it was like, well, I guess maybe I should consider doing it myself because if I want to find out this this information, somebody else has to want to also. <laughs> well, look at how many al vinyl albums of horror yeah. soundtracks are out now. You know, like today they Mondo released the thing, so people and right away I tried to get the deluxe edition yeah, yeah. and it was sold out already within like five minutes. <laughs> so there's a huge audience yeah, for yeah. soundtracks. Well, that was just starting to become a thing when I started working on the book. I ended up having very lucky with timing and that that was just starting to become a thing. Mondo had put out uh, the original Maniac score and the Beyond and I think Halloween. They had put out a handful of ones and then Death Waltz and Waxworks yeah. were starting to put out stuff. And so that was even just like further encouragement for me. That's like, obviously there are other people that want to know this because these things are coming out. And even though they make, they're only pressing, you know, somewhere between two to a thousand copies, they are selling out. So people want to know this information. Yeah. And that's not bad in this day and age of music. You yeah. know, even selling a couple thousand copies of something's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I remember, uh, you know, you were talking, you just finished the book. And when you were in the middle of reading it, I had said, I kind of uh, said to you, if for some reason you don't continue reading it, like you should at least read the Christopher Young chapter because people seem to really like that chapter for some mm -hmm. reason. I get more feedback about that chapter than any of the other chapter. And that's one of the things he and I talk about in that it's like, I kind of, I'm trying to convince him that there's an audience for this. And he's in that interview and he's like, well, what does that, what does an audience even mean? I'm, you know, like clearly it doesn't sell as many copies as, you know, like Rihanna's new song. <laughs> yeah. But I guarantee if he went out and toured and, you know, played uh, some of his greatest, songs yeah. i would go see it in a second oh yeah and but i'm sure he'd have a big audience that's the thing i don't think he was taking into account is that like the music business has changed so much that mm -hmm. you know the fact that i don't think they've done the hellraiser scores yet but if the, if he, they put out hellraiser and hellbound like they could they could print like two thousand co copies yeah. of those and those would sell it i have them on cd but I'd, I'd buy them on vinyl in a second so i mean it's a really interesting uh time for horror movie fans and horror movie music right now. And I just got very lucky with the timing of it all. You know, you kind of, we were talking about you falling in love with horror movies and then the next year kind of falling in love with heavy metal. But when did the horror movie music become a thing for you? Uh, you know, it's kind of always been a thing. Cause I used to, I remember recording the, the 
movie Halloween onto a cassette tape, <laughs> onto a 90 minute cassette tape and just listening to it all the time. Cause I love the music yeah. back when I was probably, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old. And I used to do that with a lot of movies. I'd re- because back then I didn't know where to buy movie soundtracks for horror movies. So we only had a Walmart <laughs> where I lived in Kansas and it was, they didn't have a huge selection at the time, but uh, so I was always really into horror movie music, and then probably early '90s when I, you know, graduated high school and I moved to Springfield, Missouri, and I was in this band, Public Assassin, and the other guys were really into horror movies as well. And uh, our guitar player Steve, who he had a huge vinyl collection, he had a lot of horror soundtracks on vinyl, so. We'd just crank him up and drink some beers, and he was really into Goblin, so yeah. he really got me into Goblin and, and the Suspiria soundtrack, which was awesome that John Carpenter was talking about that sort of being an influence on him as well Yeah, um, in your book. But uh, I would say one, when I really started to kind of collect it on vinyl was late 90s when I, I discovered eBay and I ordered Creep Show on <laughs> yeah, vinyl. Yeah. Uh, Day of the Dead, John Harrison, which is one of my favorite soundtracks ever. I ordered that on vinyl. And then, uh, you know, just in the past several years, like we were talking about, they pretty much any horror soundtrack that comes out on vinyl now, I make sure to pick it up. And I, I love that even these movies that um, maybe aren't the most popular horror movies, but movies that I love, like Night of the Demons. Yeah, yeah. It's one of my favorite movies ever. And I freaking love that it came out on the double vinyl version. <laughs> uh, I freaked out when that came out on vinyl because I love that soundtrack. That's one of my favorite synthesizer soundtracks. Yeah, yeah. And it has some pretty good rock music on it as well. But uh, And even there's this movie called From a Whisper to a Scream. And it was called something different. I saw it on cable when I was a little yeah, kid. Yeah. It was called... Um, the Offspring. Okay. But they put it out on a company in Georgia, I think it was, put it out on vinyl, and I ordered that. Yeah, yeah. And then another movie I love called Spookies that yeah. I saw on cable when I was a little kid. It's even out on vinyl now. So it's so cool that just these movies that weren't the most popular horror movies are still coming out. Their soundtracks are still coming out yeah. on vinyl. Well, and I freaking love that. Well, I think, you know, for me, and of course... In the book, I had I kind of had to address a little bit of this, but then in promoting the book, I needed to talk a lot about it because people would ask me about like why horror music, and there's just something about it. One, it's it's more active in the movie, mm-hmm. um, in a way, and also there's just a lot of room for experimentation. Yeah. and because some of them were, and because so many of them were made for low budget, especially in the 70s and 80s, that you had this big like uprise and no small part to John Carpenter and Goblin, but also William Freakin's use of uh, Michael Field's tubular, tubular bells, bells yeah. kind of like that's in a lot of ways tubular bells and the way Freakin used it in the exorcist is like the most influential yeah. piece of music and, you know, in, in film for like, Absolutely. The, for like the latter part of the 20th century. It's because, mentioned a lot by the composers in your book. Well, yeah, because like it kind of inspired Profondo Rosso or Deep Red soundtrack by Goblin. And then that in turn, and then, and then that in turn kind of influenced Halloween and then Halloween influenced everything else. And mm-hmm. it just was like this wonderful time for interesting 
early synth stuff. Yeah. I mean, Phantasm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, I love that soundtrack. That soundtrack is so great. And But you can hear that it's all kind of being influenced by each other. You know, yeah. you can definitely hear there's a little bit of that and the fog are very kind of similar. And the other mm-hmm. thing I think I connected with the fog is because you were talking about how you became a uh, Alice Cooper fan. And one of my favorite albums of all time is Welcome to My Nightmare. And there's a little bit of Steven. You can hear a little yeah. bit of like that lick of Steven is kind of in the mm-hmm. fog also. And Yeah. Um, just I a- love uh, that he was in Prince of Darkness and he did a song <laughs> for that. And you know what I love? Um, I love the Raise Your Fist and Yell album. That's one of, That was one when I was young that I really got into. But I love, you know what song my w- wife and I love? And every Friday the 13th we listen to it. He's back, the man <laughs> behind the mask. Yeah. I love that uh, from Friday the 13th Part 6. Yeah. Alice Cooper doing that. But uh, yeah, it, did you ever hear that supposedly William Friedkin, after he had made The Exorcist, he heard uh, Tangerine Dream and he wished he had heard them before he made the movie and he said supposedly he, he might have used their music in The Exorcist. I, I wonder what that would have sounded like. Yeah, well, I can believe that. I'm trying to think, uh, I guess... Because he did Sorcerer. Sorcerer, the, and that was one of Tangerine Dream's awesome first... awesome soundtrack. That's like one, that's one that Carpenter quotes all the time mm-hmm. as being like really influential and one that he loves. Um, but yeah, that's like a really early soundtrack for them. Uh, I could totally see it. You know, there's The Exorcist is kind of infamous in that... Lalo Schifrin wrote a soundtrack for it. Yeah, I have it. The, the, and the I think, thrown, and I, I think, think it's coming out on yeah, vinyl. Yeah, I think Waxworks is putting one out, putting it out later this year. Yeah, and then Friedkin listened to it with the movie and was like, "Yeah, it doesn't work." And so mm-hmm. the soundtrack ultimately became kind of a hybrid of classical pieces and yeah. and old field stuff for it. And then um, when they re released The Exorcist in the late '90s, they added some music. Yeah, I'm not sure who did it, but. Uh, I remember seeing it, and I really liked the music. Uh, yeah. I don't know if they've released a soundtrack for the like that version. the late '90s version of The Exorcist, but um, I need to go revisit that version because yeah. I, the one where they added the spider walk, like the, <laughs> yeah. that scene. the version you've never seen. Yeah, that <laughs> one. But I remember thinking, wow, you know, because silence really worked in the original yeah. one. But I remember really liking the music that they had kind of added for that version as well. Yeah. I remember, um, you know, you don't know Dion, but for the people that listen to the show regularly, Dion and I went, he's the guy I co-host the regular mm-hmm. show with. He and I went to go see that in the movies, the version, the Exorcist, the version you've never seen. Mm-hmm. And I was visiting him and his parents up in Connecticut, and we went to some movie theater that, let's just say it wasn't the best part of town. And so it was a lively audience. Mm-hmm. And it was full and people were talking and getting up with their the cell phones were just becoming like a thing. People like kids were just getting their young adults were just getting their first cell phones. And, <laughs> and it was just like and Dion is like the most non-confrontational person unless you're at the movies. And so we're sitting in an audience and people are talking and stuff. And somewhere in the middle of the movie, Dion just yells, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> and everybody's like, no, you shut the fuck up yelling oh, at us. But no. then everybody quieted down. And uh, Well, yeah, I guess maybe once the movie starts to get a little more intense, yeah. maybe people started kind of watching it yeah. a little bit more. But, but uh, I had the same, a similar situation when I saw it in the late 90s. It was, you know, a lot of high school kids and, and 
uh, it was a little hard to concentrate. But that's that's why I like watching videos of when it was. You can go on YouTube and see videos of it showing yeah. in the seventies, or when, just like the audio of it. Sometimes. Yeah, or the audio even when people are screaming yeah, and yeah. stuff. And it's like I kind of wish I could go back before the cell phone days, before people were kind of jaded about movies. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, now the stuff they show on the evening news is almost more scary than any horror movie could yeah. be. But uh, that's why I, I really wish I could go and see the movie as I saw it when I was younger. But once in a great while, a movie will come out that r- kind of freaks me out like movies did when i was a kid and one of those movies is called rec from spain okay yeah and uh it's a zombie movie i saw it when it came out and it just i was frightened and i loved it i was like oh my god and then a movie i recently saw called the wailing it's on netflix it's from uh south korea that movie had some crazy creepy (laughs) scenes that really disturbed me and I, i freaking loved it the last thing i remember seeing in the movie theaters that i was really I was kind of really into, and I remember I saw it with a friend of mine as we were walking out. He started talking about it, and he was being somewhat negative about it, but not in like this movie stunk. But I just said to him, I said, I just have to stop you right there. I was like, I just fucking loved it, which it was It Follows. Oh, I love It Follows. And that's that's one of my favorite soundtracks in like yeah. the last 20 years. It's uh, a guy from Staten Island, and yeah. he was doing video game music, and the director... I guess loved one of his video games or the music he did for a video game that he had played. And uh, I freaking love that soundtrack. I literally listen to that soundtrack about yeah. once a week. I have it on vinyl and I bought it on CD. And uh, I, I, I think it's an incredible movie. I, I saw it in the theater three times. Yeah. I saw it right here, right around the corner in 42nd Street. Oh, yeah. And it was. Uh... Like the music, you know, there's certain times, certain times the the cue hits, and like I literally like laughed with glee, like I was giddy <laughs> with like the way the music was and how yeah. how it was kind of hitting picture because now the whole like Carpenter esque synth score has become a thing, but uh, and it had started before it follows the re. I don't know if you have you ever seen the remake of Maniac with Elijah yeah, Wood in it, yeah, where it's all his. Perspective, perspective yeah. yeah. There's a score to that that's very less Carpenter and more maybe like 80s yeah. Tangerine Dream, mm-hmm. like Michael Mann years of Tangerine Dream. Um, so this kind of idea of this throwback to the 80s synth scores was kind of happening. But then mm-hmm. when it follows, when I was watching that and that music started, I was just like, awesome. I know. I saw the trailer <laughs> several months before the movie came out and I heard... Right away when I heard the do 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 do, I was like, okay, this is going to be one of my favorite movies ever. Just from hearing that theme, I was like, man, that. And then the movie itself too is incredible. It's so scary. And uh, but you know what else is out now that I cannot stop listening to a Stranger Things soundtrack. Yeah. Oh, it is perfect, and it's if you buy it on iTunes, it's so many tracks. I freaking <laughs> love it. It's like. I don't know how many, 50 or 60 some yeah, on yeah. each volume. There's like a, a volume one and two. And uh, I have I just bought it on uh, vinyl as well. They, two, I actually have, a, I think, three different copies of <laughs> different versions <laughs> of the Stranger Things yeah. soundtrack on vinyl. But uh, I love what the... And I can't wait to hear what they do with season two of Stranger Things. I think it's you know it's it's be, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what happens 
when this kind of style of scoring kind of gets played out again. I mean, kind of goes away when people get sick of it. I think there's a very interesting thing, and it's a, a, totally a theory. I have nothing to back this up because obviously I, I'm only, you know, as old as I am. But uh, you're just a couple of years older than me. But I feel like our generation is just more nostalgic than mm-hmm. past generations are. People that listen to the Stern Show kind of know your dad through his telephone calls and stuff or, or hearing him on the phone. Could you imagine, like, your, is your dad, like, nostalgic for anything the way that we're nostalgic for things like horror movie music? Maybe the Kansas City Royals. He loves the Royals from the 70s. We were yeah, just yeah. talking about that the other day. Um, but, yeah, you know, that's why there's such a big audience for that kind of stuff because now like synth soundtracks because people that were kids then are grown up and we have you know we have a little bit of money we can yeah you know go see people in concert that we didn't get to go see in the 80s that's why i love too that a lot of my favorite metal bands from the 80s are still touring like striper that was my first concert and now <laughs> i get to go see them all the time about once a year around here in new york and i freaking love that um but yeah, I think it's because a lot of people that are in their late thirties, forties, people are um, also having kids later. Yeah, and they're you know later now than they were. Yeah, and they're you know, getting their kids had... into that kind of stuff too. Yeah. And kids, I think, love you know like if I was a kid these days and I saw the thing, John Carpenter's the thing, I'd still be blown away by it because, in my opinion, the effects look way better than anything you could do with a computer. Yeah, because Rob Bottin. You know, he spent a year doing those effects, and what he, he and uh, his people and, and what Stan Winston Stan, did, it's yeah. they, you can tell it's it's real materials it's and yeah. and it's tangible, and they put so much heart and soul into it that it just looks incredible. That's why those original Star Wars still even hold up better than you know the the second three, the original you know, mm-hmm. episodes one through three. And I always joke around; it's like. Um, Sure, those spaceships might have only been like a foot long, but they were real. They were like, yeah. they were like an actual thing. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it totally does have like this a uh, different feel to it. And even when they're not, even when effects and stuff are not great, when you look back on them, you watch them now, there's something very just nostalgic about the way yeah. they look, even if Endearing. they're not great. Yeah, like, like, for instance, um, we just did on the, Last week, we just did, for the regular podcast, we did Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, The Dream Warriors. Mm-hmm. And that scene at the end when, like, the skeleton Freddy comes out of the, the drunk yard and is, like, battling John Saxon and the other guy. Like, you can see that it's uh, optically printed and, like, yeah. the, cause the picture quality gets a little shittier because it's, like, second generation to get the, the skeleton effects. And there's something very uh, not smooth about it. But it's also why I love it so much mm-hmm. because it's just this nostalgia of the way things used to look, even yeah. when they didn't look great. Yeah, and it <laughs> does, a lot of stuff now to me looks like a video game kind of. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of video game effects, but yeah, like in the original Evil Dead uh, or Evil Dead Two, where the the girl comes out of the ground, she's a skeleton, and she's like her head is going <laughs> yeah. across her arms, and yeah, and so I love that. It, it, I mean, you can tell it's an 80s style effect but and even um i guess they used wax or something on in the original evil dead where they're all melting but i love those kind of effects but i grew up on that stuff so i'm a little biased yeah it'll be interesting to see what 
kids of like more recent generations or like the next generation of you know tweens when they show when we show them stuff like this what they'll think of the way it looks yeah. one of my favorite things was over christmas i went down to visit my brother my brother has a son it's my nephew's like i think he just turned six or seven and uh this channel El Rey, which is Robert Rodriguez. Oh yeah, channel. and they do all those director interviews. Yeah, I love those. But they were the, for like for some reason they were doing like a Godzilla marathon for Christmas, and so I sat there and watched like three Godzilla movies with my six year old nephew who had never seen any of them, and it was just awesome to see how into it he was. That's awesome. And those aren't even good effects. Were they know? the fifties and sixties? No, they were ones? more like uh, the ones we saw. I'm, sh- I'm sure they played more of them. The ones we saw were more of like the eighties. Oh, okay, like Godzilla 1985. Yeah, yeah, I saw that in the theater when I was a kid. I remember being so excited. <laughs> I saw an ad for it in Fangoria. I think Raymond Burr was in that one. And, <laughs> and then uh, they showed whatever the last, I, I don't know if it's the actual last one, but they did one in Japan that was supposed to be like the final one. They've been doing a lot and of And it them, was yeah. directed by uh, Ryuai Kitamura, who did, have you ever seen Versus? Hmm. Oh, you should check out Versus. It's from like early 2000, late 90s, early 2000s. It's a Japanese movie. And it's one of those instances where this guy, uh, he went to, he was Japanese, but he went to film school in Australia. So like his heroes were guys like George Miller who did like Mad Max and yeah. stuff. And it was coming off of the success of things like the matrix, uh, at the time. And this guy made a movie that, and he could just tell it reeks of, he just had this mentality of, I might never be able to make another one. So I'm going to put everything I love into this one. Wow. And so it's this crazy kung fu sword play, evil dead-esque zombie movie. Really? Oh, man. I got to <laughs> see is, that. That nobody, I have yet to find somebody that loves it as much as I do. But I just wow. love like the intent behind it. He just goes for it. <laughs> and the fact that it, succeed, it succeeds even partially is amazing. Yeah. But he, he succeeds with it way more than he, he fails. He just threw everything in But there, the guy yeah. that did that directed this, uh, it was called, It was supposed to be like uh, Godzilla, like final something. It was, I don't know, mm-hmm. it was like 10 years ago. And that was one of the ones that we watched. Um, but uh, he also directed another movie that came and failed. And it was one that I have a particular fondness for, uh, Midnight Meat Train with Bradley I- Cooper. I think I did see that. What was that, like late 2000s? Yeah, that was like, yeah, that was probably around like 2008, 2009. Was that New York Subway? It's supposed to be, but they didn't shoot it Okay, here. It's I based did on the see Clyde that. Barker I got to watch book. it. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I did see and that. And it's like an early Bradley Cooper, mm-hmm. like before he became Bradley Cooper kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, I loved that when he did that movie, Silver Linings Playbook, mm-hmm. and they're walking outside of a movie theater, and like on the bill it says, Midnight Meat Train. Oh, really? He must have <laughs> asked them to put that up there. That's awesome. It was a kind of movie that I'd see trailers for it all the time in the movies, and mm-hmm. then it just never came out. And uh, back on our at the Time Warner Cable back then, there used to be a channel called... Uh, it was an on-demand channel called FearNet. Oh, I remember FearNet. And like they premiered it because it never came out. I in think movie that's theaters. where I saw it because I used to watch FearNet. I used to love. They used to do FearNet like Streets of Fear, and they would <laughs> uh, profile. They did home haunts, I think, and then they did these haunted road like documentaries. Yeah, and yeah. It was hosted by Danielle Harris. It was okay, in the Halloween yeah. movies. And I saved those. I saved them on my computer, <laughs> and I watch those every Halloween. I love those. I love anything to do with. 
haunted roads and like you know <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. one i think in there about a haunted tree that uh from new jersey that's supposed to be the entrance to hell like in that movie the gate yeah <laughs> and uh so yeah i was a huge fear net fan like you i've like taped it or, or ran it into my computer mm. from my cable box so that i'd have it <laughs> it's that's not- what i'm such a geek like <laughs> I'll, uh, I have a DVD recorder, so I record stuff off TV, then I'll put it on my computer. <laughs> like any Halloween show, any, any kind of that stuff, I always make sure I save it. But, uh, yeah. And Chiller. I don't, I think Chiller might still be around. Chiller's still around, but it's in standard definition. Yeah. When like every other channel is high def, this is mm. still SD and it's got the commercials and I think they might chop it up. Maybe it not at night. I don't know. But I remember for a while there they were airing uh, like the Friday, the Freddy's Nightmares. Oh yeah, and Friday the Thirteenth. Brad series. Pitt was in uh, <laughs> the Friday the Thirteenth series. I remember. Yeah, yeah, we were just talking about that. We were talking about the Freddy's Nightmares and um, last week with the with the Dream Warriors podcast. It's an interesting show because you get all those like late eighties, early nineties television shows where you get like these appearances by people that go on to be big things. I mean, Brad Pitt, we were talking about, he's in an episode of the Freddy's nightmares. He's also in an episode of 21 jump street from like 87, 88 and, uh, growing pains. He's in a uh, horror movie from the late eighties called cutting. Is it cutting room or something like that? I remember I saw it on VHS years ago. Yeah. yeah. Cutting class, I think is what it's called. I don't think I've seen that one. Yeah. It's a, and, uh, I think Martin Mull is in it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember cause I saw an interview with a vampire when it came out. Uh, and I was living in Springfield, Missouri at the time. And it's, it's the weirdest thing. Like November of 94, that year, a couple months before I had worked at this computers, I was an electrician. So, uh, me and one other guy um, worked wiring up this computer store, and it turns out it was Brad Pitt's dad and brother. And I, but I didn't really know that or know much about Brad Pitt until I saw an interview with the vampire, and then I became a big fan of his. And I thought it was so cool. He was from Springfield, Missouri, where I was <laughs> yeah, living yeah. at the time. And then I see a People magazine, and it shows Brad Pitt with his dad, Bill. I was like, that's Bill that used, <laughs> used to be my boss, you know, that, yeah. that was the guy that uh, we wired up him and his, his son's computer store. So it was just a weird thing, but it really uh, kind of inspired me just knowing that somebody from a small town like that went on to do something so cool. And, and I was a huge interview with a vampire fan. Yeah. And that, I love that soundtrack, too. That, that was a big soundtrack for me when it came out in 94. Yeah, that was... Um... That's one of those movies where, you you know, being so far removed, I mean, people that don't remember it, you know, we talk about, uh, Deanna and I have done the 1989 Batman movie on this, on the podcast. We talk about how nobody remembers, everybody remembers Michael Keaton as being a great Batman, but at the time, everybody was like, Michael Keaton, Mr. Yeah. Mom is Batman? Like, what the hell are <laughs> I mean, you talking about? It was like about? a controversial thing almost. But like, yeah. there was that, there was a big controversial thing with Interview with the Vampire with Tom Cruise. I remember like, Anne Rice was like, Tom Cruise can't play Lestat. She wanted she uh, Rutger Hauer, I think. And then she ended up coming around. Or, yeah, I don't, I and don't, I remember, I, I never saw it, but I heard Oprah gave Tom Cruise a hard time on her show uh, about being in that movie or so, like the, yeah. she was not, uh, that's just what I heard. I, yeah. I never saw it, but, but yeah, that was kind of a controversial thing. And uh, you know, Tom Cruise and he did it awesome. I thought he was great. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, yeah, I never saw, I didn't see Queen of the Damned, but uh, I loved Interview of the Vampire. Yeah, I remember seeing it at the movies with my stepdad, I think, took me to see that. <laughs> and I remember, I remember it was a big deal when that movie came out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was just becoming kind of huge at the time, Brad Pitt, and of course yeah. Tom Cruise was already a big star, and mm-hmm. and uh, Kirsten Dunst is so great in that, yeah. as a little kid. You know, somebody was telling me that uh, when that movie came out and they watched it, their dad was like, that's a, like a little person. That's not a, an actual child. Like That's like <laughs> an adult playing a kid. But no, she's actually really great in that. It's yeah. just like this little girl that's yeah. eternally you know, young because of yeah. being a vampire. Antonio Banderas was great in it. Stephen Ray. Um, let's see. We got a list of some of your... Oh, you told me you, uh, your dad took you to see The Fly? He took me to see The Fly. It was actually the night of a massive, one of the biggest floods in Kansas history happened that night, and I'll never forget it. We went to see The Fly, and it was October of 86, if I remember right. And I remember just being blown away. I mean, that's some of the other best, in my opinion, best special effects ever. And like when he vomits on the guy's hand oh, and melts yeah. his hand it just blew me away i was and my parents i have to thank my parents they were so cool they used to take me to see so many cool movies my dad took me to see friday the 13th part four uh the final chapter yeah. my sister and i when it came out uh which that ending scene where jason's head goes down on the machete that just <laughs> blew me away and uh, uh Savini came back for that one he did yeah yeah that's one of that's my favorite one i think in the series and I remember the day, the day after I was in fourth grade and uh, I did show and tell and I just told the whole plot of Friday the 13th <laughs> part four and some of the students complained, like some of the, my classmates complained that they had nightmares that night. So the next day the teacher goes, new rule, no show and tell where you describe horror movies. <laughs> so I ruined that for everybody. Although I was the only one that was a big horror geek, I yeah, think, yeah. in my class. But yeah, so we went to see The Fly and on the way back, it was just, it's the, the heaviest rain that I've ever seen in my life. And there's a really famous picture the next day, that all, like the town uh, where we went to see the movie got flooded. And there were cows, the stockyards got flooded. There were cows on the roofs of houses yeah. the next day. But uh, yeah, that's another one where that soundtrack, I remember yeah. being a kid and hearing Howard Shore's music. And just even kind of that... One theme where it's only a couple notes. Like, nah, 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 nah. Yeah, yeah. I love that. It's there's so much emotion behind it, and I, I uh, that was another one where the music really kind of changed my life. The the soundtrack for The Fly. I absolutely love that movie. Uh, I am a diehard Cronenberg fan, and mm. even though it's like his most commercial movie, it's still. You know, like, I'm not going to be, like, a snob about it. I'll just admit that it's, like, my favorite. Oh, mine, too. (laughs) It really, like, you can't, it's hard to imagine a movie so gruesome is a a commercial movie. Because it's got some, it's really bleak. And, I mean, he has a jar with his private parts. It's like, I don't know if they could get away with that today. Well, his whole monologue where she comes to visit him and he's just about to turn yeah and and he gives her the whole speech about insect politics yeah 
and he should have won an Oscar for that. It's heart wrenching. I mean, yeah. it's, he's so great in that, especially in that scene. That scene is so. I mean, I'm getting kind of teared up just thinking about it because, mm-hmm. and he's just explained to her, and he's like, and, you know, insects don't happen. She's like, I don't understand what you're saying to me, and he's yeah. just like, don't come back here because. I'm, I'll hurt you. And he has that great line that's so beautifully written where the line that I'm going to massacre, but the line's something like, I feel like I'm a, I'm a, I'm an insect that dreamed I once was a man or something. Yeah, yeah. And then I woke up or something. Ugh, that movie's so amazing. And then, of course, the ending is just a, like, tragedy. My story uh, with that movie is very rarely... In fact, The Fly is the only movie I can think of that my mom was like, I don't want you to see The Fly. She obviously had seen it in the movie theater or something, and she came back. She's like, I don't want you to watch it. And so, like, I grew up where it's like there's this movie, The Fly, and I'm not supposed to see it. And Made you want to watch it and, more, right? Yeah, but, well, there was that, but I wasn't, like, a bad kid either, so, like, I never really sought out after it. Mm-hmm. But um, I remember... Early to mid '90s, horror television started. You know, '80s and then in the '90s, you had horror TV. Tales from the Dark Side. Tales from the Dark Side. You had like reimaginings of the Twilight Zone in the '80s and Hitchcock. Present. Amazing stories. Amazing stories had some really fucked up episodes. Tales from the Crypt became a thing, mm-hmm. and Outer Limits had a new show in the '90s. And so we would watch these. Sh- I mean, I remember like after the news. So at like 11.30 on Fridays, like Outer Limits would come on in syndication. And then after Saturday Night Live on Saturdays, reruns of Tales from the Crypt would come on. I remember on that. Yeah, because I didn't have, when I moved out of my parents' house uh, when I was 18, I didn't have cable yeah. or anything. I just had But at antenna. some point, they started running in syndication just as like repeats, yeah. reruns. Yeah. And so we would watch these together as a family. And I remember one night... In the middle of the night, I don't know where my stepdad was, if he was asleep or if he was away on business or something, but I'm, a, I'm sleeping in my bed and my mom comes and wakes me up. And she says, the fly's on. Come down and watch it with me. And this was the movie that I was never supposed to watch, you know? Wow. And so she wakes me up and, I, and looking back, she must have just been kind of like too scared to watch it by herself at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and so I come downstairs. It's in the middle of the night, and uh, we're watching it on commercial television with commercials and stuff, you know. So it wasn't like uncut, and probably a lot of the gruesome stuff was cut out. Even though even sometimes late at night they wouldn't cut a lot of that stuff out. Yeah. But so I've always had this weird fondness of that movie because it's one of my favorite memories of my mom, mm-hmm. like waking me up in the middle <laughs> of the night to watch this movie, this That's like awesome. David Cronenberg movie. That's awesome because I have mine, my movie that reminds me of how cool my mom is, is Lucio Fulci's Gates of Hell, <laughs> because which most people know it. I know it as Gates of Hell of Hell too, City but a lot of, of people, Dead. a lot of people know it as City of the Living Dead. Now. Yeah, but uh, so we had a satellite dish when I was growing up. I was so lucky that, I mean, first. When we didn't have a satellite dish, my Aunt Donna had HBO like in the early 80s. So my dad would take me over to my Aunt Donna's house, and that's where I saw American Werewolf in London like in 1982, when uh, I saw Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which to this day is one of my all-time favorite movies ever. Um, I saw so many cool movies there, but then like a year later, around 1984, my parents got a satellite dish. And I just remember it was a school night, 
And my mom woke me up at about three in the morning. And I was like, what's going on? And she goes, you got to come watch this movie. <laughs> and I think my uncle Herbie, who was into horror, had told her about the one scene where the woman vomits up her yeah, cries inside. Bl- cries blood. Cries and blood and then vomits up her intestines. And I just, my mom knew that I would love that scene and I would love that movie. And so she woke me up to come watch Gates of Hell on a school night, like at three in the morning. And I still had to go to school that day. So I just (laughs) stayed up. And I remember going to school saying, oh, my mom woke me up to watch this movie Gates of Hell. And this woman pukes up her guts. (laughs) And everybody at school was like, what the heck did you watch? Why is your mom waking you up to let you watch that? And it's one of my favorite memories ever just the fact that my mom was so cool that she knew i would love this vomiting scene from (laughs) gates of hell it's so weird that we have we both have moms waking up waking us up in the middle of the night to watch horror movies i know if anybody else who's listening has a mom waking them up in the middle of the night to watch a horror movie please you know find us on facebook find me on facebook and relay this story to me and get her a very nice mother's day (laughs) gift because she's an awesome mom um i we're gonna start wrapping up soon i'm trying to think the the keep you have we have a list of movies that you gave me here oh i gave you probably a way insanely long yeah, list of I asked my, for some five there's like 20 movies like yeah that. i mean i get passionate about this stuff i love i saw the keep when i was a kid because i remember seeing fangoria did a big story on the keep and they had a picture of the vampire and it was that kind of skinless looking yeah, yeah. crazy thing and i always loved that its eyes were glowing red it is a stunning visual yeah and i love the music tangerine dream the music for that's beautiful i listen to it all the time uh and only a couple years ago i read the original book and uh if you get the chance read the book the the book uh from the keep uh the book is way more vast and from what i had heard that the original movie version of i think it's michael mann uh directed the keep uh, supposedly the original version is like three hours long and they cut it way down because yeah. i um my favorite movie theater in new york is nighthawk cinema in brooklyn my wife and i practically live there we're going there this wednesday to see coming to america <laughs> but uh so they played the keep on 35 millimeter there and uh my buddy john who is uh the curator there john woods he said i think there was only one or two 35 millimeter yeah. versions of the keep left and he he showed it and then he i think he sent it to alamo in uh texas yeah yeah but uh it was cool but i went with my wife and a couple friends of ours and i don't think they knew what the heck was going on because yeah uh from the book to the movie they in the movie there's a lot that doesn't get explained and in the book they explain everything yeah. and it's just a freaking awesome book it's one of those notorious stories of yeah like michael mann's cut of that movie was like three and a half hours long mm-hmm. and then the studio cut it down to like 80 minutes or something i hope like the that. original cut exists somewhere um there was one of those, i would love to see that there was one of those kickstarter campaigns recently where oh, really? somebody was trying to make it wanted to make a documentary about the making of the oh key. wow i don't know if uh I'm not sure if they ever raised the money they were looking it's for. It's on Netflix now too, I think. Yeah, it's uh you can find it on Netflix or I think like Amazon Prime. Um they showed it at uh BAM 
in Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Academy oh, yeah. of Music. They did a Michael Mann series, and I think I even spoke about me trying to go see that movie. Oddly enough, I think I, I, go, I talk at length about this story when we did the movie Tombstone, <laughs> which has nothing to do with Michael Mann or The Keep, but it had just happened to me where I had always wanted to see it, and I had never seen it. And I like Michael Mann's stuff, especially his earlier films. Mm-hmm. And they were doing this full retrospective, and I went to see Manhunter, uh, screening of that, and they were playing the keep in 35 millimeter, probably the, maybe even the same. It print. might have been the I, same print, was, they were yeah. just like shuffling around the area before they sent it to Austin or whatever. <laughs> and I went to see it, and unfortunately, I got there late because I had to work beforehand, and then I had awful seats. And uh, I mean, you know, the movie, it's a little bit hokey. Yeah. looking at it now and sometimes the unfortunate things with like these retrospective film screenings you get like a bad audience sometime yeah the people that want to make fun yeah, of yeah or even movies. like i went to see halloween at uh, years ago at the uh museum of the moving image people just laugh their way through halloween i hate that it drives and me it, nuts and I, I yeah it it was very it's upsetting like, that's not a movie you, you laugh at i mean i in a way i get it because like that shit has become cliche some of it but like at the time it wasn't he invented those like tropes that exactly. are now cliche and so like that, that was upsetting and this happened with the same thing happened with the keep and the two guys behind me you you would have thought we went to go see young frankenstein or something like they were just laughing and i had never seen the movie before and so this was going to be like my i was going to see a 35 millimeter print which looked pretty darn good mm-hmm. in a movie theater and i was so excited for it and uh, it started, and have you ever seen the movie The Church? Yeah, the, Michael Sovey, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. the time of, it had. I a, love uh, Delamore, Del, oh, yeah, Delamorte, yeah. Cemetery Man. I, I, love, I, I love his stuff, uh, yeah, and I, I really like The Church. It's so weird. But like I'm watching this movie, and there was something about the tone of The Keep that reminded me mm-hmm. of The Church. Um, that movie also has a great soundtrack that's kind of, Keith Emerson did a bunch of tracks for it. And then Fabio Pignatelli of Goblin as Goblin, Build as Goblin, did a bunch of tracks. So that soundtrack is actually this weird mix of Keith Emerson and Goblin. Oh, I got to check that out. I haven't heard they that. They didn't soundtrack. collaborate together yeah. on tracks, but like, so it's this nice. weird compilation. And so, like, that synth, like, Tangerine Dream, it's mm-hmm. just like there was something about it that was like reminding me of the, ch- of the church. And I love that movie. So the fact that these guys were really laughing it up behind me bugged me so much and i was like if i sit through this movie and i watch the whole thing now i who knows when i'll watch this movie again mm-hmm. you know like i'm not gonna watch it again soon because yeah why just, can't those guys stay home and laugh at it <laughs> yeah i don't want this to be my one experience seeing yeah. the keep so i got up and i left <laughs> oh wow and i came home and i watched it <laughs> on TV i wish they could myself. do some kind of test for people to go see you know classic <laughs> movies are you gonna make fun of this are you gonna laugh if so don't go <laughs> Because I'm the same way. If uh, if I go see, even like we were talking about The Exorcist, a lot of people, there's yeah. stuff they laugh at. And it's like, I don't think there's anything funny about anything yeah, yeah. in The Exorcist. It's just, uh, you know, sometimes it's it's tough because it's sometimes it. The beautiful thing about seeing a horror movie in the in a movie theater is that crowd experience mm-hmm. there are things about seeing a horror movie in a in the theater like you'll jump at scares that you would never jump at at home yeah. because there's just like tension in the audience like yeah. it's almost tangible well i just went uh, last year i went to see 
at Nighthawk, uh, that movie, The Witch. Yeah. And that was cool to see with an audience because uh, there's some crazy stuff that goes on, especially towards the end of that movie. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to give anything away, but uh, that I didn't know really what to think of it. But once uh, something, I, I ain't going to give anything away. Go out there and see the movie. <laughs> but there's a part at the end where something starts talking and it blew my mind. Yeah, I yeah. was like, that's freaking awesome. And the voice of this thing is so scary it just it gave me chills and uh so it was cool seeing that in the theater because my wife and i a lot of times will go on a saturday for brunch sure yeah. <laughs> we went on a saturday we were having mimosas watching the witch <laughs> i was like man you know life is pretty good it's a cool time we live in that there's a movie theater that's serving brunch food and mimosas and you're getting to watch a scary horror movie in the middle of a Saturday. Yeah. So it's a, it's a really, it's a, you know, it's unfortunately it's a hit or miss. Like you can get these really great comedies are the same way. Like things that you'll laugh at in an audience or sometimes you won't even find that funny mm-hmm. when you, when you're sitting on the couch by yourself watching it, there's something about that, uh, that audience experience that really changes the way you view the movie. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, sometimes you get these bad experiences where yeah. people go to see these, you know, movies from the seventies and eighties and it's just like, it doesn't translate or they just find it hokey or whatever. Yeah. Like I showed, I taught for three years. I taught a, a class, a college course in, at SUNY purchase about the history of horror movies. And so every year it was kind of like feeling feeling out the class of what to show, trying to refine like the, the, the film list. Second year I did the class, I showed, uh, you know, I also wanted to show stuff that I don't think, I wouldn't think that they would have seen or mm-hmm. they might not go out and check out themselves. So like I yeah. didn't show like Nightmare on Elm Street or I didn't even show Halloween. I figured like those are movies that they have access to. Or they show something like seen. the video dead <laughs> something like that. <laughs> that would be tempting, but I showed Maniac one year. Oh, nice. Uh, kind of talking about slasher movies, even though it's very not a slasher movie in a lot of ways. But Did it's the part Tom of the Savini shotgun scene <laughs> blow them away. But that was, they enjoyed that. But when it was done, when that movie was over, the class just, it just did not play for them. And some girl even raised her hand and was like, why did you show us this? Oh, wow. And. Uh, part of what I did in that class also was I would show clips from other movies. I didn't have time to show like every movie I wanted to show. So I would show like, so I'm talking about horror movie, uh, slasher movies in the eighties. And, and even though that's not a stereotypical slasher movie, it got made in 1980 because of the success of things like Halloween. Mm -hmm. And then Friday the 13th is right around the corner. had just come around around then. And um, so when I showed clips of Friday the 13th part, like six, same kind of things are happening, but they're done in like tongue in cheek. Yeah. Because by like five or six, it's like, I don't want to use the word parody, but it becomes almost meta yeah. in a way that like it's playing. I love six. I saw six in the theater. I love the beginning scene yeah. where, you know, he stabs him and he gets hit by lightning. And I, <laughs> I love that actor. He's from Return of the Living Dead. Yeah. I mean, uh, he Those plays are, uh, um, Tommy Jarvis, is that his name? The character, yeah, yeah, but uh, and also um, Horshack from Welcome Back, Cotters. <laughs> but uh, Dion, who I host the regular show with, he's a big nightmare. He's a big uh, Friday the Thirteenth fan, and five and six are his favorite of the series. But you know, 
once you get into like the later films of any of these series, they start to kind of play with uh, the tropes of the series or in the genres in general. And mm-hmm. it becomes a little bit of a tongue in cheek thing. Yeah. And they loved watching clips from these other har- these other slasher movies. But the problem was in Maniac, it's like that movie does not have a sense of humor about itself. Like it takes itself very seriously. Yeah. And it and rightfully so. But the problem is um it's low budget, it's very dated, and you have like the POV of like uh, you know But it also maybe to them it seemed almost like a home movie. Kinda. Yeah, I I wonder if like they couldn't connect with it because it like kind of freaked them out. Yeah, in a way. like almost like a found footage, you know, something they'd see on YouTube. But it's funny because like the same stuff that they didn't like about Maniac, they loved in watching these clips, you know, like the nurse running into the bathroom and hiding. I don't know. That just didn't connect with them. But then when you get like the same kind of stuff happening in these other movies, it's just the whole audience experience. is like a really fascinating Mm -hmm. thing. And it's great when you can find like the right audience with the right movie and everything kind of gels. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I do want to talk about before we wrap up is blaze a soundtrack volumes one and two (laughs) i don't think a lot of people realize that uh, on top of being a heavy metal drummer uh and playing with you know bands like iced earth and death and you've mentioned a couple of other bands here and of course we talked uh about charred walls of the damned which is your current band Mm -hmm. which um with Charles Walls of the Damned, do you write all the songs or is it more of a collaborative process? No, I pretty much write everything because the other guys are all like Tim Owens, Ripper Owens, our singer, uh, who he was in, he came into Judas Priest after Rob Halford. Yeah. And he tours a lot. He tours all over the world, has his solo band. He's real busy. Steve DiGiorgio is our bass player. He's currently uh, touring with Testament and he just did a new album with them. Uh, Jason Sukoff, our guitar player, he produces tons of bands now. He's like a well-known, in-demand yeah. metal producer. So I kind of just write all the music, and and you know I understand those guys are busy, so I just kind of take care of all that, demo it, and then um, Jason and I kind of go through it first and do pre-production. And yeah. Jason's an amazing songwriter, and uh, so I kind of trust him. And on this newest album, I wrote like 24 songs. I just sent them to him. I said, just pick out the best ones that you like. And so he did. And we kind of, we even take the songs that I write and maybe he'll change the tempos or cut them down to where they're a little shorter. Sure. And, uh, for this newest album, we just made the songs real compact, real catchy, real memorable. So then Jason and I'll go through, uh, with the demos and whittle everything down. And that's when the whole band comes in. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I write all the charred walls of the, the damn music. And then uh, about five years ago, um, there's an event up in Westchester, uh, New York, near Croton-on-Hudson, yeah, yeah, in New York, called uh, the Great Jack-O-Lantern Blaze. And it's something I've been a fan of for a long time because you walk through uh, something around between 6,000 and 10,000 carved pumpkins and they have a path that you walk through and... They even uh, model the pumpkins into like a Stonehenge type thing and make dinosaurs out of these carved pumpkins. Yeah. And it's every late September through October and even early November they have this event. And 
I'm a Halloween freak. I love Halloween. And so they contacted me. I, I got to know this guy, Rob, that kind of runs the, the Pumpkin Blaze. And one year he said, hey, would you be interested in writing original music to accompany all the displays yeah. at the Blaze? Like when you walk through, you'll hear different music that accompanies each So they have like PAs display. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. They music. have speakers all throughout. And I was like, well, yeah, of course I'd be into doing something like that. So uh, we met up with um, uh, the carver, the, the head carver, and, and Rob and I met. And they kind of showed me a map of what each display was going to be. So they gave me kind of an idea. It was, almost was like doing a movie soundtrack. They said, okay, now when you walk up through uh, the dinosaurs, you want to hear... I kind of did this sludgy kind of almost like a dinosaur stuck in the mud type synthesizer yeah. uh theme and you know for um there's a headless horseman area so i did kind of a maybe an 1800s type yeah yeah theme and it was really cool they gave me kind of a little bit of direction about what they were looking for with with each area of the blaze and so I ended up doing the soundtrack for the whole event and probably did on the CD. They put out a CD and there's a lot more tracks on the CD than are actually at the event because they probably used about 20 tracks at the event. And then, but I had written so much that I was like, oh, let's put a bunch of them on the CD. Sure. Uh, just to, for something for people to play at their Halloween parties yeah, or, yeah. you know, just to get excited in October. And, it's very John Carpenter inspired, very Tangerine Dream, Alan Howarth, um, uh, a lot of synthesizer stuff, and there's some kind of more rock stuff with drums and things like that. But it was just—it's a lot of fun to do because every July I'll, I'll get some pumpkin beers, I'll light up a, a pumpkin candle, I'll put <laughs> uh, you know Halloween or, or Michael Doherty's Trick or Treat on the TV, and and it's just a—it's a blast to write it. So. Uh, people can check it out on iTunes or on Amazon if you just type uh, "Blaze" the soundtrack or type in my name. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it'll come up. And yeah, uh, I had no idea that you had written this stuff. And when we started talking about you coming on and talking about horror movies and maybe some horror movie music, you were like, "Hey, you know, I, I've actually written like horror music, even though it's not specifically for any kind of movie." And you sent it to me, and I downloaded it, and it's it's pretty sweet. And we'll definitely have you know we'll post links to uh to where you can find them uh the blaze stuff and i think we might even as we end the show we'll play something from the blaze uh Thank you. soundtrack stuff Thanks, and then blaze. and of course we'll have links for you to go find the charred walls of the dam stuff too if uh unfortunately not a lot of people actually get the show from our website anymore they, they end up downloading it from itunes mm -hmm. but we always put up links to uh movies like you said uh Evil Ned 2 is on YouTube. Maybe we'll put a link to there on the site so people have access to some of these things that we've been talking That's about. That's kind of how that Blaze thing got started is just, you know, I, I've i had a set of keyboards since the early 90s. And uh, when I started doing these low-budget horror movies just with a camcorder in the 90s, my favorite part of doing these movies was writing the music for yeah. them. And, um, you know, sometimes it was just hooking a keyboard up between two VCRs and doing it that way. <laughs> but uh, I've just always, I love playing keyboards. I love composing music. And one of these days I'd love to 
to do a movie or, or kind of go down that path. Um, you know, and reading your book really inspired me as well. I love when you would ask composers, uh, how, what advice do you have for somebody wanting to go into this yeah, field? Yeah. And, uh, there's a lot of great information there. Plug the book, scored to death conversations with some of horror's greatest composers. Uh, that's available on Amazon and, and stuff like that. Uh, like you said, your, uh, blaze is available on iTunes and also Amazon, uh, as downloads. Um, I would assume that Char Walls of the Damn stuff is available. Those oh, yeah. Too, yeah, it's and... everywhere. You can even, uh, if you want it on vinyl, like I'm a vinyl geek, so <laughs> uh, you can just go on the Metal Blade. Uh, that's our record company on their website, and you can get it on vinyl. But, uh, yeah, it's pretty much everywhere uh, now on Metal Blade Records. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, Richard. This was awesome. I've been a stern listener forever. And so, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is because I think there's – I think there's people that know you from the music world, and I think there's people that know you from the Stern world, and obviously the diehard Stern listeners know that you also are a music guy, but I think a lot of people don't realize, even though that you play music, that I don't think people understand like how prolific you are as, as a kind of a composer and a songwriter and stuff. And, Thank you. And, uh, and, you know, I know that you're, you know, I knew that you're a diehard uh, horror fan mm-hmm. and so i wanted to get you on here so we could talk about some horror movies and thank you blake because was... i'm a huge fan of your book <laughs> as well and uh my, we got to give a shout out to my buddy jerry who came to your signing in la yes. and he bought uh the book as a gift for me even though i had already bought a yes, copy sweet. myself but it was awesome to get a, a copy with uh your autograph and several other like alan howarth and a lot of, a lot of... yeah i remember he came up and he's like i actually buying this for a friend of mine in new york and i was like oh i live in new york and he's like he works on the howard stern show and i was like oh who is it because i listen he's like richard i was like oh that makes sense <laughs> <laughs> and like i told you i was very tempted i don't know why i didn't but i was very tempted to sign it too rusty <laughs> uh, well i brought my <laughs> other copy today so maybe you so can you sign have... that one to me as as rusty and uh my buddy jerry's a big horror fan that, that came to your signing and him and i actually i was playing touring with a band called incantation and that's where i met jerry and we ended up having a lot of days off on that tour and we were in a van so we hit like everywhere when we were in pittsburgh we went to the monroeville mall yeah. from dawn of the dead everywhere where we were if there was a horror movie filming sure. location site close we'd go there we uh we went to my favorite place in the world is Point Reyes Lighthouse in uh, um, California, about two hours north of San Francisco, and that's where they filmed The Fog. Yeah. And uh, we got to go there. We got to go to all the Halloween films. you walk film. all the way down there? All the way down the stairs. I, I, I've heard it's the equivalent of walking up and down the Empire State Building. It's like so far, so many stairs, and uh, it was incredible. It's just, it's... One of those places that, for me, it changed my life when I got to go there. Sure. It's like a spiritual thing. It's on the edge of a cliff overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. And it's there's whales everywhere and seals and then there's fog. And, yeah, yeah. And just, you know, me being a huge fan of the fog, that was like a pilgrimage for me sure. <laughs> to go there. But, uh, yeah, my buddy Jerry and I, we're, we're big horror nuts and we got to go to see a lot we got to go to the where they filmed john carpenter's vampires like the little ghost town in new mexico that was awesome yeah yeah i uh unfortunately i haven't been to too many places but i did a couple of summers ago i I was doing a project of my own and we went to pittsburgh and um 
we couldn't fit the Monroeville Ball in, but we went to the cemetery that was at the beginning oh, of the nice. original Night of the Living Dead. Dead. Yeah. It really is like, you've, it, there's like an energy. It is it is like sacred ground. It really is. And yeah. you're walking around and you can kind of, you recognize the, like where the, the you know, the little building and the, yeah. the specific tombstones. And, and you're like, holy crap, 1968. This is where History the was modern yeah. zombie you know, yeah. <laughs> film was was invented right here. And well, like I remember we went to Monroeville Mall at night after the mall had closed and there was just one security guard, this old man, and it was a bunch of us long hairs, you know, walking up. He's like, he's probably like, What the hell's going on? And uh we go, Oh, we want to see the mall from Dawn of the Dead. He's like, That movie was twenty years ago. What the hell do you want to see this mall for? <laughs> And yeah, obviously he was annoyed that people, probably a bunch of people yeah. had bothered him with wanting to see them all. But it's like, you really have to understand that it's much more than just being a movie from 20, well, at this point, you know, yeah, yeah. 30, almost 40 years ago. But uh, he didn't understand how important it was to us. But he still, he let us go into the, the lobby, the beginning of the mall, which was pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it, yeah, I mean it's experience. I totally recommend it for people that are into these, you know, these movies and especially. Well, that that horror's hallowed ground. Oh, horror's hallowed ground. I yeah. love that. Yeah, you can, um, Sean. Yeah, Sean. They his have. Name. Uh, I met him at the John Carpenter show. He's a super <laughs> nice guy. Yeah, they have these. Uh, I mean, I, I would imagine it started as like an internet thing, but on these a lot of these new Scream Factory releases on Blu-ray of these amazing movies that sometimes as these special features have these, this segment called, uh, horrors hollowed grounds. And this guy, Sean goes around and shows you like all the film locations. Yeah. I love when Halloween three, Halloween great. three. My dream is to go up to Eureka, California, uh, up around where they filmed that movie. The fog is a good one. He goes to the church. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. yeah the church stuff. is actually closer to LA. I think yeah, um, yeah. they kind of filmed, most of it up there around Inverness, California. There, there was a screening uh, last year, I think, where they were going to screen Prince of Darkness. In the church. In the church. Oh, my God. I, I think I my bought, buddy Jerry I, was I there. bought tickets for it, and then like it came around, and I just like could not oh. go. And I was like, well, what if I go in the morning? I'll get there, and then I'll see the movie, and then I'll take a red eye back. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was all set. I was oh, like, really man. trying to trying to awesome. make it work. Oh God, I love that. That's another soundtrack that I think is just a masterpiece. Yeah, I love. It's one of my favorite Carpenter scores and Carpenter movies. Yeah. I just love that movie so much. Me too. Anyway, we could sit here and talk about this forever. Oh, real quick, one more quick thing about seeing movies <laughs> in a church. Do you ever go up to Cathedral St. John the Divine around no. Halloween? No. Uh, we just saw uh, the cabinet of Dr. Oh, Caligari okay. there with a like the organ player. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. They, every, around Halloween every year, they we've seen Nosferatu there, and they do old black and white silent films with a yeah, live organ Yeah, that's cool. Player. I mean, I, I don't think, unfortunately, I don't think I've ever seen, I mean, when I was in film school, I saw screenings, obviously, of the black and white horror films, the silent ones, and like the German expressionist films. Um, I, I'm a big like Buster Keaton fan. So I've seen a lot of those silent comedies and a lot of the Buster Keaton movies with either a organist or piano player or even a full band accompaniment. Um, but I yeah. Have, oh, sorry to interrupt. I have a friend who plays in a band called Morricone Youth. 
Oh yeah, yeah. They just did like a rescore. They released on vinyl like a rescore I, for Night of the Living Dead. I, I have it. Yeah, they play at Nighthawk Cinema a lot. They actually wanted me to play drums one night, uh, but I wasn't available. But uh, they're awesome. They 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 do really cool stuff at these screenings. Yeah, yeah. It's a uh, it's a whole phenomenon, and I, it's one of the reasons why you know I feel blessed to live in i know we're so lucky i mean this is stuff (laughs) we were into as kids and now it's just as popular you know like john carpenter is just as popular now as he was when i was eight years old when i saw the thing maybe even more so now with his albums and everything Mm -hmm. but uh, again uh check out blaze if you're a horror movie music fan it's totally worth listening to uh again we'll put links um charred walls of the damned if you're a metalhead like myself it's uh those are a must um and uh richardchristie.com for yep. all, th- all things richard christie and i'm on twitter at cwotd for charred walls of the damned and i can't let this interview go by without saying i love that uh here at your place you have a halloween 3 pumpkin mask <laughs> <laughs> i see I it know, sitting over there like in the corner of the room too. it's not even displayed oh it's i just... know i just see a portion of it i'm like i know where that's from <laughs> <laughs> that's freaking awesome i uh I was telling you before uh, we started recording that uh, one of the one of the several shows I saw, the John Carpenter shows I saw, one one of them was in D.C. with my buddy Dave, and he has a matching pumpkin mask, and we were both like, "Let's bring our fucking pumpkin masks," <laughs> and front row like put on our Halloween three pumpkin masks, and when Carpenter looks over, oh, just... that's awesome! And then we kind of chickened out because we were afraid that uh, they would get confiscated because now getting into shows like. Oh, bringing anything like wearing a mask yeah. would be kind of sketchy. Turns out, when we got there, you totally could have. There was like we just walked in, nobody even. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even remember Friendly Bean even took our tickets to, <laughs> to get to get in. So we were kind of in a we were kind of bummed that we didn't end up bringing. You it might to. not have been able to see the whole show though with a pumpkin mask on. So you might have done the right thing. But we came very close. The highlights of that that show was after he went off and came back for like the encore he looked right at us and gave us that like hand symbol from uh big trouble in little china that they, oh, nice. that, that they yeah. <laughs> the guys he like looked right at us and he gave us that We're like, oh my god <laughs> that's so cool <laughs> how just... many people can say they've got that from john carpenter that's awesome uh again this is a new show movie uh saturday night movie sleepovers presents movie lovers uh you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher and every place that you can find uh, podcasts. Again, I have a book called Score to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, which we talked a bit about today, and that's on Amazon, now available on Kindle as well. We have a website. The old uh, link is sat sleepover, com. but we finally just bought saturdaynightmoviesleepovers.com, so if you go to that, you can uh, that'll take you to the site as well, and of course you can Google it. Um, not sure when the next one of these is going to be, but, uh, next week we'll have a new regular Saturday night movie sleepovers with Dion. And I want to thank Richard Christie one more time and urge everybody to go check out all his music. And, uh, thank you, Richard. Thank you, Blake. This was a blast. I, I could have gone on for five more hours, <laughs> but <laughs> I know people probably have things to do that are listening. So. I know. That's why. And every time I tried to wrap it up, we just kept talking. I know. It's tough. You know, I, I'm passionate. So uh, thank you so much for having yeah, me. Yeah. I, I, I know, you know, we can maybe do it again sometime. Yeah. Down the I'm, road. I'm game. I'm definitely game. I got a lot more stories of my love for horror. <laughs> 
Thank you, Richard. And uh, we're going to leave you with a track called Alive and Well from Blaze, the soundtrack, volume two by Richard Christie. It's available on iTunes and Amazon and just about everywhere you download music. We'll be back next week with a brand new Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Thank you. Later. Later.